Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. I'm Andrea, and I'm joined today by Lauren Buita and Gina Bennett from Girl Security. Um, so to start off, I can just give a little bit of a brief intro of, of those joining us today. So Lauren is a founder and CEO of Girl Security. Lauren began her career in national security in Chicago as a policy analyst at the National Strategy Forum, a nonpartisan national security think tank. In 2009, while attending law school, Lauren launched her consulting firm, Steel Consulting, which provided support to clients on local policy issues, including exclusionary land use policies and racial segregation in Chicago. In 2016, Lauren recognized both the continued underrepresentation of women in national security and the need for a more intersectional approach to security. In response, she launched Girl Security, the only organization dedicated to advancing girls, women, and gender minorities in national security through supportive pathways. And then Gina, I know we've had you on the show before, but welcome again. Gina is a former member of the CIA's Senior Analytical Analytics Service and longstanding former member of the Senior Analytics Service, who was previously on assignment as a Senior Counterterrorism Advisor in the Directorate of Strategic Operational Planning in the National Counterterrorism Center. Gina is an adjunct faculty member at Georgetown University in the Security Studies Program of the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and at Georgetown Washington University in the International Policy and Practice Program at the Elliott School of International Affairs. She's also founding board member of Girl Security, which again is an educational program to familiarize elementary to high school girls in national and international security issues. So that was a bit of a mouthful, but welcome Gina and Lauren um, to the show. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, so this is kind of an episode where the listeners will get to know a little bit more about girl security and about our collaboration. Um, I think, you know, we've been recording so many exciting episodes with both the girl security fellows co-hosting, um, and, uh, you know, having also pretty amazing guests join us and talk about their experiences as well. Um, so just to set this tone of the entire series as a whole, we wanted to get to know a little bit more about your experiences as well as, you know, who is girl security and, and what do they do? Um, so an understanding, you know, this uh, new way of thinking about national security that we really want to embody within this series. Um, so, you know, starting off, would you both mind telling the listeners a little bit more about yourselves that wasn't covered in, in those intros and what exactly led you to, um, you know, focus on building out the national security workforce? I'll begin. <laughs> I'm first of all, I'm delighted to be with Gina. Um, it's really an honor to be able to share this space with um, such an inspiring person who has come to shape a lot of the work at Girl Security in significant ways. Um, but my own background, I sort of suggest that I'm the moral of the story in the sense that I again, began in national security in Chicago, which I think was an unexpected place for people to realize. Even now, when I talk about it, people ask me what was what was happening in national security in Chicago. Um, and so I think having had that experience of looking at these issues through the lens of sort of a Midwestern um, vantage point actually provided a lot of insight into how we approach some of these issues in national security uh, through girl security, but also uh, you know, at a young age, I was again sort of had exposure to the underrepresentation of women across the sector, and then of course has you know experienced um, you know both harassment and other types of um, discrimination within the workforce that I was in, and so all of that really shaped how we approach a lot of the issues at Girl Security as well. 
So I will add on to that because Lauren and I had the good fortune of having a mutual mentor, Suzanne Spaulding, who connected us, what was that, like 2015, I think, Lauren, when we first talked, or 2016? Yes. lost track of time. Uh, But anyway, we were a match made in heaven. (laughs) It was very exciting. Of course, I I was, you know, I, I only recently retired from my agency career, so I haven't been able to do but a little bit for girl security until now. So um, Lauren is just underselling herself quite a bit, Um, but that's usual. I, uh, you know, I think having spent almost three and a half decades in counterterrorism way before it was like a cool job, uh, you, you know, when I first started, it was the Cold War and there were Soviet troops still in Afghanistan fighting the Mujahideen. And, you know, the world changed a lot over those three and a half decades. But I have to be honest with you, from from the very beginning, walking into the world of national security, uh, not just intelligence, I never quite agreed with the prioritization schema that we had from the very beginning. So it always, I, I questioned it from the start. Um and I still do. So, but um, having the opportunity now to work with girl security and not have my day job at the same time is really extraordinary. That between that and being able to teach you know, at Georgetown, where I've started a new course called Hunter Gather National Security, it's just an opportunity to really dive into why my observations seem to be so off, you know, was it just me or, you know, what was going on? And that's been amazing. And I have to say, it's nice to not talk about terrorists. It really is. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, one of the, the wide ranging themes of our collaboration is that national security takes many shapes and forms. And I think, you know, you touching on just the fact that you know, you're able to rethink of national security in different ways, in large part because of um, both of your work with girl security. Can you just, you know, talk a little bit more about how girl security has really helped, you know, to reframe national security issues, um, you know, to allow you to think about national security in different ways and, and what exactly girl security is doing to educate younger folks and, and kind of, um, you know, allow them to be open-minded about national security careers? Yeah, I mean, I think the basic premise of our model is, um, you know, Gina and I both sort of alluded to this, which is there's many different perspectives about what national security is and also how national security impacts the lives of not just people within the United States, but globally. And I think that's going to become, you know, a bigger part of the conversation. Um, as one of our advisors, Sue Gordon, always says, is, is there even such thing as national security? Is it, isn't it all just global security? So I think the basic model, the basic premise of our model is a belief that girls and other young people have important perspectives about how our country defines and executes its national security priorities. So that's number one, is simply a belief in the power of youth to participate in these conversations. Um, I think a second thing, you know, again, we see our role as sort of assiduously adhering to this idea that it's not our job to tell girls in our program what to think, it's to provide learning, training, and support for them to be able to fully conceptualize their own ideas 
and create outcomes that can actually have an impact on the discourse. Of course, this podcast is one of those ways. So we have long time, we have long had a mentoring program, which has really been the hallmark of the organization. And some more exciting news is I think this year we'll hit our mark of supporting over 600 mentees. Um, those are girls, young women, and gender minorities from across the United States, ages 14 and up. It's a really important program. It fosters peer-to-peer -peer mentorship within the workplace. Also a concept that we've been working on, reverse mentoring, so helping youth actually mentor up. Um, our workforce training program, which Gina is co-leading with Shannon Harrison, who's our director of learning and training, I think combines some of the most dynamic learning at the intersection of national security and sort of forecasting or future facing um, analysis with just life skills. Some of the professional skills that we know from employers have been lacking in the workplace. And then an exciting project that will launch later this year. Again, another project that Gina is co-leading is the first high school national security curriculum. So we'll be targeting dual enrollment high schools throughout the United States, as well as community colleges. But again, the whole idea is really flooding the market with a diverse workforce that is also highly skilled uh, with really equity driving that mission set of how do we grow the talent pool of girls and women in this space? How do we create spaces to value their perspectives and ideas? And of course, catalyze them into eventual leadership roles where they can um, bring their visions to fruition as well. I, I do want to add um, one of the reasons pers for me personally, why girl security and Lauren's model in, in particular, her commitment and tenacity in, in defending this idea that we are not teaching girls or anyone who comes to the program what national security is or how to think about it. Uh, we all have, of course, our own opinions about what it is. And I mean, I'm very passionate about my opinion, but that is not what we convey or teach. It's about empowering, especially the young people who come in and understand to empowering them in the sense of of believing their perspective, believing and hopefully giving them the confidence to express and their their perspective. And you know what? They're gonna learn, of course, things. They're gonna their perspective is going to be challenged, but so is ours. And and that's a good thing. And for me personally, that was so critical because um I would you know I would go as far as to say and again, this is me talking, not necessarily girl security, but I would go as far as to say that it is all of the people in the world or all of the folks in the United States, no matter what age, who feel as if they have been excluded from defining national security, defining what security means to them, who are the ones that we need to empower. It's their voices we need to hear. And their ideas that we haven't been culling through and adopting all these 230 some years. And um, as someone who, you know, I grew up in, um, you know, with childhood sexual abuse in within my family. So I grew up from a very young age with a complete and profound lack of safety around me. And and yet I still found my place in security. I still found out what security was. 
And so I, I naturally am biased from my own experience, but I do think that people who have not had the benefit of being or feeling safe have unique methods and approaches and strategies for making themselves secure. And I think that translates at a societal, national, and global level. To add to that important point that, you know, I was sitting around a table with some folks working on cybersecurity recently, and the conversation was sort of how to define the skill sets. And there was this distinction between technical skills and soft skills. And I think we can add hard skills to the table. And, you know, our group began to forge a conversation around why aren't they all just considered skills, right? Whether it's coding or it's empathy or it's collaboration, it's all skills that we've sort of siloed into these really exclusionary and sort of pigeonholing categories. And I think what Gina's expressing, which many of the girls and women in our program have experienced, is a skill set and it's a particularly apt skill set for the type of work that the national security community does and i wanted to just put a fine point on something else gina said which again is sort of why i'm half joking about the midwestern side but i think if you lack access to the ladders in certain centers of power within the national security sector and i'm thinking specifically about the policy making side um you know, it can be a huge deterrent, uh, the sense of elitism that can accompany a lot of the work in the national security field. And I just remember at a very young age, thinking to myself, not people working in national security serve the public, they serve the American public, right? You're working on behalf of the nation. And really, in, in the most basic sense, everyone then should have um, some level of access to shaping how national security priorities have been defined or will be defined. Um, and so, again, just sort of going back to the model, that's where we're really pointing our arrow for the people we serve in our program. Yeah, yeah. And I like how you mentioned, you know, that sometimes it feels like a very elitist circle that is working in in this field in particular. And I think this points to what you were talking about, your curriculum in particular, teaching young girls and women, you know, how to think, not necessarily what to think. Um, so I just wanted to to talk a little bit more about that, um, you know, understanding that because uh, like those that work in the national security field typically come from the same circles, often having the same mindset and um, kind of point of view with regard to their personal experiences and what they believe national security should be. So how is um, the curriculum, if you can speak on it, how is the curriculum designed to be able to, you know, not necessarily put forth, oh, this is what it is, but this is how you should think about it. So, you know, I think the most important part about our curriculum is actually starting where the participants are, starting in a conversation that they're already comfortable with. And with that comfort comes, you know, confidence, and then they feel competent enough to talk and, you know, build it out a little bit. And you don't typically see that if you approach, you know, international security studies or national security studies and you're looking at realist theories or, you know, theories of how relations work in the world that are all very state-centric, uh, government-centric, which is fine, except in the grand scheme of things, they're no different from the way individual people relate and and interact with each other. It's just the state versus you know, person. So we we find it really important. And again, for the curriculum that Lauren was just mentioning, um, we're launching that under a project that is for everyone. It's not. It's it's still written from our perspective and informed by our our lenses and our experts. But it's accessible. It'll be accessible for everyone. And it still is going to start with what do you think 
security is to you? Like, what is it to you as a person, as a human being, as an American? Uh, what is safety to you? What does it feel like to be unsafe or insecure? You know, what are the things you value? You know, some people value the privacy of their cell phone, for example. Others may value the ability to wear their hair the way they want to. It, you know, they're all right answers, but you have to start with you, right? And and really, once you start there, it is easy for us to show them how the path goes from individual and where that is then applicable when you go to your town, your school, your county, your city, your state, your nation, the globe, you know, the human race versus aliens, whatever, however far you want to go. It's still about the same kind of um, values, what you value, what you want to protect, what you consider safe and security and um, what you want to secure in the world. And so it's it's not really that hard. In fact, I find, you know, teaching at the graduate school level, we often make what is very simple, more complicated. And I'm not really sure why we do that, but it's, it is pretty, it can be pretty simple if we just allow it to be, that does not make it easy. It doesn't make it easy to, to have national safety and national security, but it doesn't have to be a difficult concept. Yeah. And I would just add to that. I know there's, there are some basic expressions within the curriculum, as is the case with all of our programming that some might not pick up on, but we invest a lot of time in, which is everything from sort of age reflective design elements. So features graphics of participants in our program to techniques and frameworks uh, with our wonderful teammate, Shannon Harrison, of including things like social and emotional learning, being cognizant of the mental health space of learners. So those might be some of the behind the scenes aspects, but all of that is really vital to ensuring that whoever uses this program will feel that they will understand that as an organization, we value their perspective on the issues. They're also building, Gina and Shannon have also built in some really cool immersive learning and interactive features, which will allow for that interplay. Um, and again, that continuous expression of uh, girl security values your opinion and believes that it matters in this in the space of learning as well. Um, and I would just add in, you know, focusing on high schools that offer dual enrollment, as well as community colleges, you know, we're really targeting people who have been left out of this conversation and can not only participate through the curriculum, but can also pursue pathways. So there's a lot of features within that to showcase mentors in our program, career pathways, resources. So it's a really robust, it will be a very robust learning space. And if I could just add, jump on that one other nuts and bolts feature that I I think is also really important to the empowerment um, at different levels and ages is uh, we have like a choose your own level of learning style that we're delivering this. So if you, you know, want to dive deep, you can, if you don't, you don't have to. And so it's not a, like, you have to know this, you know, that kind of thing. And you're, you know, you have to take this final exam and memorize all of these concepts, but what's, what I really appreciate about that is, um, you know, some some participants are going to be really, really interested in one aspect and not another. And this allows them to direct their learning. They get to be in charge of what they learn and what they absorb. And I'm, I'm hoping that that especially is um, appreciated at various different 
uh, community colleges, the high school level, just anyone, you know, even, you know, grandma retired at home, like myself, you just want, wants to be more familiar with the debate and discourse. You can, you can take this. Seems like a very inclusive, uh, curriculum. That's it. You really took everything into consideration. And I think, you know, building off of the point that Lauren made, it's just really assuring people that their voices are heard. Um, And I think this also speaks to a little bit about uh, the role of mentorship in in this program as well. And also, you know, the role of mentorship in your career trajectories too. Um, So, you know, why is mentorship in this field important? And what is girl security doing to to help foster that sense of community with with the fellows. Yeah, I mean, I think I think mentorship, which again, you know, these these kind of concepts continue to evolve and it sounds quite formal, but I would say in my own life, the best mentor I had who passed away in April 2020 uh really just created a space for me to grow and make mistakes, which it was a very sort of unintentional, indirect way of mentoring, but it had a lot of value for my growth in a way that maintained my own agency in the work that I was doing. And so I feel like with girl security, similarly to sort of what we're saying of creating those spaces of belonging and support, our mentorship model is phased. So we pair participants in our mentoring program with someone one step ahead of them in their sort of trajectory, which again, fosters a sense of peer to peer mentoring, but also just allows for greater connectivity. Um, But we also have really cool opportunities to engage for mentors at more senior levels, which can include um, anything from running one of our instructional workshops to hosting mentoring circles where participants get to meet with a lot of really cool women at senior levels and understand their pathways. So we approach it, I think, through a couple of sort of more direct and indirect sort of softer versus more structured ways. And we find that um, that the mentoring relationships that are built as part of this program, um, they exist well beyond the three-month commitment that we uh, request of mentors. And so I think for us, driving that culture of mentorship, both peer to peer, and I'd, I'd love if Gina shared the concept she's brought into our work is reverse mentorship, of really fostering that culture of mentorship as soon as possible with this generation, because I fear that even at the senior levels, it may be too late now to seed it uh, in the same way that one can at essentially what is a grassroots approach, right, of seeding it before young people enter the workplace and feel a sense of obligation to their peers to continue it. Um, it has provided, a, you know, really a lifeline of support for a lot of participants in our program as well. And just to add to that, I think, you know, for me, mentorship in national security um, takes on a really critical role when you're a minority, because you're going to feel like it's just you. You know, I'm the only one who's questioning X, Y, or Z decision, or I'm the only one who wonders why are all the pictures in this hallway, um, you know, white men and there's, there's nobody else. Like, am I, is it just me? And I think uh, a lot of minorities and especially I, I would say girls and gender minorities are, are susceptible to this feeling like, okay, it must just be me. Like this must be okay with everybody else because nothing has been done about it for decades. <laughs> so um, for me, that mentoring was always really important because I needed to know, not necessarily that we were going to be able to change it, but that someone else shared the same concerns or was having similar experiences. 
And I'm not saying that it was, you know, just so we could commiserate, but it was so we could validate each other's perspectives and 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 start to strategize and combine and collaborate, combine forces and collaborate to make changes. Um, and that was tremendous to watch over 34 years. And it really did change. And to see, you know, the generational shifts and more women in like where I came from, the senior analytics service being able to mentor others and challenge, you know, things that might be, you know, just old ways of looking at performance and executing, you know, roles and just like buzzwords that are not very descriptive, but tend to have some historically misogynistic, you know, leanings to them and really going you know, just having the courage now as a group to be able to challenge those things as we saw them. I thought that was really important. But I think overall, um, as Lauren uh, alluded to, the mentoring program is very much a two-way street because, again, the young generations are are perceiving everything very differently. And and being digital natives is is a huge part of it. Uh, but also, you you know, they have been through the pandemic, during their developmental years. And they're going to have thoughts and solutions and impressions and trauma, really, that's very different from generations before. And so I think that opportunity, not just to mentor, okay, well, here's what you might, you know, you might face this and here's how you might navigate that, but also to hear from them. But why is it like this? You know, to hear them question those things and really force people in a decision at a decision level to explain it and in doing so sometimes you realize hmm maybe it shouldn't be like that anymore and that's you know the idea of the reverse mentoring has a little bit of that effect but it's it's also recognizing that you you never stop learning if you don't want to as long as you're humble enough to be willing to continue to learn yeah and i just wanted to shout out to Jarena Thomas who joined as our director of mentoring and professional advancement six months ago. And she's really building out a dynamic space for mentees in our program to, again, be able to elect a mentor who closely identifies with them, whether that's having the same hometown or the same racial or gender identity or having just a shared interest. And, you know, we're always asked about the impact of our mentoring program. And when you may be 14 or 15 years old, and have an interest in a field and you can see a woman who looks like you talk about this really cool job that as a first touch point can really be the difference between someone staying in not just this program but but really maintaining their interest in national security so i really think the mentoring program is it, it began as something that was again very grassroots and organic and it's grown into something that is going to be probably one of the most impactful parts of our work. Yeah, it definitely seems so. And I, you know, it seems like a lot of effort and time has been put into designing a program, a mentorship program that suits the need of everyone involved. Um, and, you know, just also creating a little bit of a sense of community as well. And I think that's um, embodied with the Girl Security Fellows who have been joining us um, throughout our conversation. So, you know, wanted to also introduce uh, who the Girl Security Fellows are, you know, prior to, to leading into this series. If 
you both can tell us a little bit about them. Um, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about, about that community within Girl Security. The Girl Security Fellows are just amazing. <laughs> That's the short answer. Um, you know, when you think about it, they're, they're girls, young women and gender minorities from across the country who elect to go into a pathway where they are either not seeing someone who looks like them or maybe even deterred, as a lot of girls in our program are, from going into the national security space where most of the common associations are with, let's say, the military and public information around military and challenges around sexual harassment and assault. You know, we get a lot of parents who say, I don't want my daughter to be injured or violated in the national security space. So you have this cohort of young people who elect into this work um, and really sort of, it's a little bit of baptism by fire because most of them have never had the type of learning and training that we've presented to them. And so they're really taking on uh, a level of vulnerability with themselves and with each other to sort of navigate new waters together, develop new skill sets. And also, um, I think I call it sort of taking intellectual risk on issue areas that for most people are really complex around artificial intelligence and nuclear security and uh, domestic terrorism and human trafficking. These are all issue areas that they bring to the table. Um, and so I think the fellows really represent a diverse sample of the prospect of hope that we have for this future diverse workforce. So our goal is really as an organization to just grow and scale to support more and more of these remarkable people and help them get into pathways and stay in pathways as well. I'm not really sure I could add much more. I, I completely agree with the um, the short answer. They're amazing. And, I, I, you know, one of the things Lauren mentioned hope, one of the things that gives me hope about them is even though they are like entering the fellowship in this kind of vulnerable place, like, Ooh, do I belong here? Am Am I, the, you know, am I smart enough for this group? All those things that go through your head when you're in those in that age range, especially. Um, even with that, they dig. You know, they they want to know why, 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 and and they will continue to ask questions and challenge you and leverage the opportunity that's in front of them rather than shy away from it. And that gives me tremendous hope because it is that approach to the unknown that we need. We don't need people faking it. We need people to say, oh, this is ambiguous. This is unknown uncertainty. I'm going to lean in. I'm not going to just pretend like I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I think related to that is they're willing to grapple with a lot of the ethical and other implications sort of embedded in our national security considerations because they're in a space with each other where they're all again sort of exploring these areas and i would definitely direct people to the national girl security strategy which is published on our website which was sort of a playoff of the national security strategy and i will note was published prior to the actual national security strategy uh, but it's a 65 page document that you know, over 50 fellows drafted together on what they deem to be national security priorities and thanks in large part to Gina's direction, completed strategic implementation plans that not only sort of identified an aspirational end state, but actually challenged them to think through um, and do a lot of heavy lifting around how would we actually execute or fulfill some of these priorities. So they're not shy, they're ready to, to dig in. And I think the more of them, the 
the merrier that all of us will will be. Yeah, definitely ready to dig in. I think that's something that you know listeners will hear on our on our future series episodes. Um, I think you know every every time that a guest would come back after an episode and say, "Oh, that was amazing," you know, uh, the fellow did such a great job, and I think you know even having fellows ask questions that I didn't think about during our conversation and, um, you know, seeing them slowly develop that confidence to, to be able to put themselves out there throughout the call as it progressed, uh, was something that was really special. And I think it, it makes this collaboration very unique. So it's a, it's a good part of the program. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I I've felt the same way. It's, it's really cool to see it. Yeah. And I think too, on a related point is as it's no secret to probably listeners and others is, you know, we're having this conversation around DEI in the workplace and especially in national security. And if you take a, you know, stripped away view and the most simple perspective one can have is, uh, why shouldn't there be a place for all of these young people with all of these exceptional perspectives to be able to dig in and feel included and, and valued in the national security workforce? Um, that's what I think of every time I hear some kind of counter argument to the importance of DEI is why wouldn't we want every single person to have the opportunity to to contribute and commit to this important work every single day? No, exactly. I, I think so too. Just you know, echoing off of everything you said, I can't <laughs> add anything to that. That was well put. Um, so switching our conversation over to rethinking national security, the crux of girl security, as well as the hunter-gatherer national security, Gina, that I know you've been working on as well. Um, So I know we talked a little bit about how security and safety means different things to different people based on our our experiences growing up or, um, you know, other life experiences. So in what ways is national security multidimensional in that sense? Well, I think the question is, in what ways should it be multidimensional in that sense? Uh, it, um, as I mentioned before, when I when I first started, it was still we were still in the Cold War. We were still, you know, afraid of mutually assured destruction. And um, I did the whole duck and cover exercises, you know, when I was a kid to to I don't know, not be vaporized by a nuclear weapon, but. I I always, even then, before going into high school, questioned why why are we so afraid of this? Because it it just it seemed to me that even if you know half the country and half the population was destroyed, um, I didn't believe that we were going to wake up the next day, the day after, which was another one of those apocalyptic movies that we'd all watched. Um, were we going to just say, okay, yeah, we'll be communists now. That's it. We'll give up on this whole democracy thing. Had enough of that. Um, fast forward to 9-11, um, you know, nearly 3,000 people were killed, but we didn't decide to become a caliphate. And so it, it has just always struck me as very odd that we are so afraid of these external threats or threats of, you know, violence, um, mass disruption and destruction and death. I understand that they are tragic and they're, and they're traumatic. And we of course have to do what we can to prevent them, but they're not buying us security. You know, that gives us national safety and there's a role for that, but none of that is going to secure the constitution. I mean, there's no way we can have enough B-21 bombers to secure the constitution. 
there's no no amount of border walls that we're going to be able to put up that are going to convince Americans that their vote matters. Um, we're not going to be able to, you know, build millions of battleships and face the so-called pacing threat of China and expect that our, you know, most passionate uh, activists on either side of the aisle are going to suddenly start respecting each other and cooperating. It's that's not going to happen. So recognizing the limits of what we have called hard security, what we have looked at in national security as defense and security, as if they were synonymous, and recognizing the limits of that is, I think, the important point right now. Um, I really believe we started to feel it as the cyber domain became more ubiquitous. But now, given you know the things that we've experienced with election interference and, and misinformation, disinformation, malign influence, et cetera, it's, I think it's a wake-up call to, oh, wait a minute, um, maybe we put all our eggs in one basket and we needed to maybe mix it up a bit. And so that's, to me, that's where I say it should be multidimensional. But I think our, you know, adherence to realist theories about security that really put state power and military power and power projection at the center and heart of security approaches is starting to catch up with us. Um, you know, what that leaves out is really starting to catch up with us. And I think it goes a little bit more into, you know, the follow-up question that I had on that um, was, you know, how can we reshape our thinking as to what we identify as a threat to our national security? Because again, you know, personally, it, it can mean a different thing to different people. And Lauren, feel free to jump in here as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So it is it is hard to you know, come up with one definition for a threat. But it's interesting. I had a question um, a couple of weeks ago uh, at a conference and someone asked, what's the difference between a threat and a danger? And, you know, a lot of folks on the panel answered, well, you know, it's kind of semantics and it's, you know, really how you define it, which is all true, of course. And then I just offered that you know, in my mind, you could look at it as a threat is something that exists and that can cause harm, can cause death, can cause destruction and, you know, extreme too. But a danger is something that can change who you are, or who the nation is or the your governance, the integrity of your freedom, your ability to choose how you want to be governed. You know, that's that's a danger. Um, and the dangers to our democracy versus the threats to our nation's safety and security are are come from different sources. Um, you know, obviously, Abraham Lincoln said this best when he was 28 years old in the Lyceum Address, where he, you know, he said he just said, look, there's no one out there who can threaten the United States. Only Americans can destroy Americans. Now, of course, Lincoln said it much more eloquently, but you understand the point. So it, you know, I think to think that we're going to live in a world without threat, that we're going to live in a world without attacks, is to be in a constant state of insecurity. If we define security, our national security, as the absence of attacks and threats, then we will never be secure, ever. Yeah. And I think just building off of what Gina said, and sometimes I feel like I'm 
embodying Ted Lasso with like really simpleton ideas. But I feel like I just draw a lot from my own experiences, whether it's with family or as an organization, which is, you know, you can you can choose to see sort of the fissures and in your own organization or in your own family, or you cannot. And I think where we are right now, to Gina's point, is mistrust in government, um, mistrust in the whole idea of democracy is a is a challenge that I know young people are grappling with. And um, you know, just statistically speaking, recent surveys around trust in government show, you know, worsening rates, which means that we have we have to seek to understand the why of that. Um, and I think, you know, again, this basic idea of um, a functional democracy is is an imperative for our national security. And so if we we can't take a hard look at some of these challenges that underline growing distrust in government, I think we have um, much bigger challenges on our hands around even aligning people around those priorities that the national security community deems of utmost importance. Um, and again, that's where I think youth engagement, youth education, is going to be a short-term investment with long-term gains for our country. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think you both touched on this, and, and this is a topic that I wanted to go a little bit into after we introduced hunter-gatherer national security, but this idea of safety versus security. Um, so, Gina, I was looking through your slides, trying to think of questions. <laughs> I was like, oh, if I were in your course, I would definitely ask this because I, I could see where, at least for me, I would, I would struggle to wrap my brain around that. Um, but before we talk about that, just setting the stage on hunter-gatherer national security, which maybe might provide an explanation for, for that ambiguity between those terms. Sure. So the idea behind hunter-gatherer national security is, it's not a theory, it's just a way of thinking about national security that I hope is opening up the aperture a little bit. If you If you consider that as Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, when they coexisted together, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, were nomadic clans, nomadic beings for upwards of 300,000 years before we became settled societies, which that only happened 12 to 15,000 years ago. So there's a lot of that DNA and natural selection and survival skills and instincts that come from when we were hunter-gatherers. And of course, anthropologists can study the handful of communities that still are nomadic hunter-gatherers too, and can continue to see the 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 parallels, you know, the connections. But the point really is, it's not about gender; it's about the roles. Now, it's true that in hunter-gatherer times, hunters tended to be assigned by birth sex, but it wasn't exclusively men or boys, you know, it just happened to be whether or not you were fast and strong enough to be in a hunting party. Gatherers were mostly women, but not exclusively women. So it's important, I think, to remember that because it's in, in, in either case, however you look at it, the functions, the roles that they performed were both equally necessary for survival. Uh, you know, the hunters were foragers, hunters, Okay, mainly protecting the clan as it bedded down for however long it did in its camp. And the gatherers, of course, gathering the the vast majority of the nutrition coming through, you know, seeds and things that used to exist that don't anymore. 
but they're also the strategic planners, right? They're the ones who are able to pro, you know, forecast what's happening with climate, what's happening with the environment, how many more, how much, how many more mouths are we going to have to feed because these babies keep, you know, staying alive, which is awesome. But and of course, human babies requiring many more years before they're independent. So there's a lot of teaching and learning and culture and skills that have to get passed on from generation to generation, mainly through the gatherers. So those roles, although ensure survival in this in these hundreds of thousands of nomadic years. And when we became a settled society, the divide between domicile and public sphere is really what started to put a wall between those roles. That doesn't mean that you know everyone talks about the agrarian revolution as the birth of the patriarchy. Um, I, you know, I concede the point, but I don't know if I agree because I don't, I think we look back and we sort of put our, our, um, more the legacy of misogyny and how roles have been genderized on a time when it maybe didn't exist. So, you know, even if you were confined to the domicile, what you were doing in there, what you were innovating, you were still teaching, you were still doing the gathering, you were creating all of the stuff that was needed for farming and selling and weaving and all the other things. You know, um, you know the saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I've always said motherhood is the inventor of necessity. So I think, you know, you know, especially mothers are probably the most innovative people out there. But with mostly men in the public sphere doing the farming, doing the trading, you know, selling the surplus and creating what we all know now to be the public sphere, where recording and history and everything was, you know, was done. We, we, that division of those roles at that time, and then the fact that nothing really got recorded about the domestic sphere doesn't mean that it wasn't important. You know, the fact that it was left out of history and not recorded doesn't mean what was going on in the domestic sphere was the same as was going on in the public sphere or that it was less important. So, trying to bring it forward and take away that pejorative genderizing to it, right? And realize that we are all familiar with these, you know, survival instincts of fight, flee, and freeze. But we're not as familiar with the survival instincts of observe, collaborate, innovate, and warn, which is what's going on in the domestic sphere or among gatherers. But if there aren't two sets of survival instincts today, then that means the protector, defender, hunters really sucked. Because if women had to develop the exact same set of survival instincts, that means they had to they face the same level of threat as the men. That doesn't look so good. And we know that's not true. So what we have, all the theories that we have built on that really center on survival safety of the state and of the physicality of the people and the and the whether it's the the walls that you've built around your clan or whether it's the walls you've built around your country, all of that is based on the survival instincts of hunters, and we're missing the survival instincts of gatherers, the observe, collaborate, innovate, and warn. You know, it's it's a 
different, and I'm sure there's others, there's different sets of skills there. And we just haven't prioritized those in national security. So again, they're not necessarily gendered because even Thomas Jefferson, I would say, was a was a major gatherer um, because he believed in the education of the people as the most fundamental necessity for democracy. That's that's not hard security right there. I would just add that I think where sort of girl security picks up in part on Gina's work is having an honest conversation around how gendered roles has shaped or misshaped our understanding and execution of national security. And again, how do we create that space? And it's not DEI, it's not this controversial, um, um, which is not, I don't think it's controversial, but it's perceived as controversial. It's not this controversial approach we're taking in the sense that we're questioning gendered norms, right, in our work but also recognizing the experiences of women in national security. And I think if you look back to some of the earliest institutions of national security, one of which was referred to as the National Security League, which was created around World War One, women at that time were pitted as peacemakers. Uh, they were peaceable and men were war fighting. And so I think we continue to revisit through our own lens, sort of the history and impact of that gendered sort of um, peace versus warring and to understand how do we revisit these gendered roles through a more intersectional lens at a point in our country and our world where the nature of security is 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 changing so rapidly and what are the continued impediments that girls and women will face in their advancement in this field and where are there opportunities for organizations like girl security to inject new thinking and advocacy to give them more level footing so that they can excel in this field in in pathways yeah no thank you for also providing i love the you know juxtaposition of you know, the explanation of what exactly this theory is from Gina, but also, you know, your um, insight as to how girl security is really incorporating this into their work. I think, you know, especially when you're learning about a new theory and um, my follow-up question, Gina, was, you know, how can we, like, what are some examples where I would take hunter-gatherer theory and apply that to national security threats? Um, so I think, you know, putting it into practice makes it so much more uh, real, I guess, so much more tangible to perhaps someone working in the field who has had this um, idea of what national security is and hasn't really had the opportunity to explore what else, you know, how else you can envision this. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because coming from counterterrorism realm, um, again, just having had conversations recently about the future of terrorism, what are the trends in terrorism these days? And um, you you might have seen, um, Lauren, you sent me the article about, you, you know, in inside Afghanistan, our groups are gathering again, and they may be operational within six months. Um, talking to the military, of course, which has, you know, drawn down its CT footprint around the world and is focused elsewhere. You know, the burden on the intelligence community to warn perfectly 100% of the time or our partners to provide us just the right data right when we need it or the military to prevent or you know it's it's extraordinary because in this past 20 years from 9/11 we have not built societal resilience and there's no way that 
if we have another attack in this country, especially with the political environment, we aren't going to like flip our whole national security and defense apparatus all over again and and do whatever, right? Um, so in my mind, we've spent trillions of dollars on our global war on terror. Uh, there's just as much terrorism as there was before. In fact, Al-Qaeda is a much bigger organization than it, than it was on 9-11, for that matter. But my point is, if we want to reduce the impact of those mass disruptions, as well as acts of mass casualties, you know, and, um, and murder, mass murders, then we have to build the societal resilience here. And that means teaching. I mean, that's an educational process that is not just limited to third grade and sixth grade and 10th grade in, in school. It's constant. It's a uh, it's you know public service announcements. And it's just an enormous effort of teaching resilience in our population, and recognizing that only you know the only way to really defeat our enemies, whether they're terrorists or whether they're Putin or whether they're you know China or anybody else, the only way to defeat them is to disallow them, deny them the opportunity to influence how you think and how you behave how you vote, how you act with your neighbor. I mean, that's the best way of defeating them is making them irrelevant to, to us, to America. And you take that away and yes, they can still hurt us, but they can't change the United States of America. They won't change our constitution or our form of government or what we think of as our American way of life. Um, so, you know, ed- I would, education is, is one, one very clear one. Um, and building societal resilience. And it actually can be done. You know, I've done resilience studies for years to, to, to say, oh, it's too hard. We'd rather just build resilience and critical infrastructure. That is soft. <laughs> that is weak. Um, I don't believe that America can't build societal resilience. So, you know, you know that I just think that's a cop out, but in another area, for example, um, like just, just just say energy security, we someday are going to be dependent on a different form of energy. Now, which country creates that energy or what population creates that energy could be our next superpower. I don't know. But what I'm, what I'm saying is um, America got almost 100 years of primacy out of the atomic bomb. I hate to put it that way, but we did. The next thing that happens and creates a new form of energy, um, very similarly, I think, is going to whoever that is may have a very disproportionate influence globally than you know everyone else combined, and we don't think about it in those very long terms about what that might mean and in investing in that. So when you you know, when I look at the defense budget, absolutely, we need to defend ourselves. But one battleship could change every high school in this country. Yeah, and I would just add to, I mean, I think about Gina's approach in a lot of the issue areas that I wouldn't say are emerging, but are developing, you know, even sort of applying the lens that she presents to another pandemic or another biosecurity event, what would we have done differently or what would we do differently if we prioritized these different skills or values 
um, I think the outcomes would have been much more or much less destructive, I would say might be how I would characterize it. And I think the same thing in the digital domain, you know, girl security is doing a lot of work in the trust and safety area around encryption, you know, where there's these really basic tensions at play between immediate concerns around child rights, which are very important, but also from the national security perspective, this long-term global competition around encryption versus China and other adversaries. And sort of how would we think about these seemingly competing issues if we identified a core set of values and priorities and skills like the ones that Gina talks about in her theory, I think at the heart of what she talks about is a much more sustainable and holistic paradigm for thinking about these issues as opposed to short-term reactionary strategies that have unintended and really untenable, unintended consequences and created untenable situations. So I think overall what she puts forward is um, prudent to be an understatement. Yeah, can I actually, Andrea, can I just add, and I know I know we're almost out of time, but I just want to add, a, put a fine point that's sort of more recent. And Lauren, I'm sorry, because you know the story, but the uh, of the difference between a gatherer approach and a hunter approach. And again, I'm not arguing we don't need the hunter approach. We need both, but we don't have both. We have one. So last fall, um, anthropologists who wrote a wrote a study on a, a little ivory artifact that they came across a long time ago, but in further study of this little ivory artifact, which appeared to be a little comb, they found writing on it, which they have now um, proven to be the first oldest form of alphabetic writing that has been found. So 4,000 years old or 6,000 years old. I can't remember if it was 4,000 BC. <laughs> I think it's 4,000 BC. So the oldest known writing that we have found on this little comb. And the message on the comb or what's written on the comb, it's not the secret of whether or not the chicken came before the egg. It is. It just says, um, use this comb for to get rid of lice on your beard and hair. Um, so it's basically the instructions for use engraved on a on an ivory comb and then they found you know fossilized lice larvae on it and everything but when you think about it someone bothered to carve in this little tiny ivory comb i don't even know how they did it this sentence um which goes back to my we don't think about lice that much now but back in the day pre-hygiene lice could kill could wipe out the entire clan so you had someone who thought to build, you know, and create this and then bother to actually carve this out so that others would have that knowledge and share it and build more combs. And, you know, it's, it's just basic gatherer survival instinct right there because the threats to survival are existential. They're just different. They come from different sources and they require different responses, just like our threats today. Thank you for putting that into perspective. I think <laughs> just that example of lice as a possible security threat, which you don't obviously think about that nowadays where, but uh, taking that different perspective from someone on a different timeline, uh, you know, frames it differently. Um, I know we are past time, but just to wrap us up last question, and we typically do, you know, what advice would you give as, uh, you know, kind of like an ender uh, to all of our conversations, but 
for those folks who want to be involved in the national security field or learn more um, about different ways of thinking national security, what advice would you give? I mean, my my basic, well, first of all, if, if you're listening and you're interested, go to girlsecurity.org and sign up for programming. Um, but I, I think an important sort of skill that all of us foster and bring to the table at Girl Security is just asking, what if, you know, questioning the status quo. Why has this thing been defined the way it has? Why has this thing been designed the way it has? And I think that exercise of sort of critical thinking or interrogating can lead to subsequent questions that will yield to different outcomes for our national security field. So I think just fostering a sense of curiosity and critical thinking is a skill set that everyone has access to and sort of does inherently well from childhood and would be a huge benefit to the national security field. But practically speaking, if you need help getting into a career, find us online. Yeah, obviously, I feel the same way. I think, um, especially with our new curriculum coming out, we're going to have the best thing out there for anyone who wants to, again, direct their own journey here and determine how much they want to find out and how much they're interested. Because if it's not for you, it's not for you. You know, there's something else out there that's going to be wonderful. So, uh, but the other thing I, I, I guess, I, the other thing I would suggest is because, um, you know, as a kid, I felt pretty isolated and alone. I didn't have a lot of mentors or protectors or, you know, anyone really looking out for me. Um, but it was also pre-internet. And, you know, it was before I could hop online and find a professor at some local university or even if it's a university farther away and send an email. Um, I mean, maybe they won't answer you. Maybe they will. But I mean, it's I guess I wouldn't shy away. I would let somebody else say no, in other words, rather than not ask. All good advice. Well, thank you so much, Lauren and Gina, for joining us today. And I encourage everyone listening to, um, you know, tune in to our series, which is set to launch weekly. But thank you again. Thanks for having us. And thanks for the partnership. We're really excited.